Welcome to the book club where the size is just right, the books aren't too long, and you never need to host. That's our job. We bring best-selling and award-winning writers of every genre to Twin Cities metro area libraries to share their stories, discuss their work, and answer those burning questions you've always wanted to ask your favorite authors. This is a book club where we don't have to argue about what the author meant. They can tell us. The book club that doesn't require a clean house or wine and cheese. And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. Although, we hope you'll be inspired to pick it up next time you're in the library. I'm your host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten because this is Club Book. Club Book is made possible by Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund, MELSA, and Library Strategies. We would like to thank our media sponsors at Minnesota Public Radio and MinPost.com for helping us get the word out about our great guest authors. This podcast features Ingrid Rojas Contreras at Dakota County Library, Wentworth. Colombian-born Ingrid Rojas Contreras is author of Fruit of the Drunken Tree, one of 2018's breakout fiction debuts. Based in part on the author's own experiences growing up in factious Bogota, Contreras' story is set against the backdrop of drug kingpin Pablo Escobar's shadow reign over Colombia. This turmoil is explored through the eyes of Chula, a seven-year-old from a well-to-do family living safely in a gated community. When her mother hires Patrona, a young woman from the Bogota slums, as a family's maid, Chula is forced to challenge assumptions and change her worldview. Entertainment Weekly commends Fruit of the Drunken Tree as simultaneously propulsive and poetic, with something powerful to say. In addition to her fiction, Contreras has contributed essays and thought pieces to publications as varied as USA Today, Architectural Digest, and BuzzFeed. Hello. Uh, thank you so much for coming. I'm, I'm so excited to be visiting. Um, do, do people know what TikTok is? I just, yeah. my sister just introduced me to it and we just made my first TikTok video on, on our way here. So it's, I'm very excited about that. Um, I'm, I'm so happy to share with you my, my debut novel um, tonight. It took me seven years to write it, right? It's a long time. Um, and um, I think, it, so it was a story that it was, it was very difficult for me to tell and you just heard it, it's based on my real life. Um, and my, my first um, attempt at telling the story was to try to tell the, the truth or try to tell the true story. And I very quickly got stuck. And I couldn't, I started to tell the story and then I couldn't get beyond the first page. Um, and I, I put it away for many years, and there's, there's some stories that always haunt you, that it just, you know, I was trying to write other things, and then it, just all the writing, everything that I was doing um, for those years that I was trying not to tell the story kept leading me back into it. Um, and eventually I, I just, you know, did the simplest trick. It was just going in and changing the character names. Um, and then suddenly I, I found a way to, to speak. Um, there's something about fiction, 
that, you know, because it's fiction can be a veil that you wear or a veil that you put over a real experience, it allows you to go to deeper places or it allows you to, to come closer to the truth. Because um, you don't, um, yeah, you have that distance. Uh, so it provided me with that distance. I, I came to the US in 2002. Um, and I just became a citizen last year. So this is gonna, thank you. This is gonna be my first election. I'm so excited to vote. Um, so, uh, you know, like uh, coming to the US as a new immigrant, I was always surrounded by just going into the immigrant communities and was really fascinated by the way when we come to a new place and we start to make a new life, all the different um, reactions that there are to that. So there's some people that really want to just begin anew and are not interested in, in any kind of reminiscence of what happened. And there are people who are living in the past. And then there are people that are having some kind of double vision where you're, you're living in the present and then your life is constantly interrupted by memories of what you just went through. Um, and reading the fiction, the you know, immigrant stories, I was kind of struck by all the, all the stories that we read or the most common story is of someone arriving and then their life after. And I wanted a story that was about um, someone arriving who is stuck in the past and then their life before. Uh, the other thing that I hadn't seen in fiction was uh, a story of someone who is um, stuck in a difficult situation and they try to migrate, but then they can't. So it's like the failed immigrant story. Um, so this book has, has both these two girls that you just heard described. Um, they're both, they both get in, into this, um, their friendship kind of like leads them into this dangerous uh, situation in 90s Colombia. And one of them is able to come to a refugee to the, uh, as a refugee to the US, and the other one is not able to, to escape. So she's kind of stuck um, back in Colombia. Uh, so I'm going to read to you from the first chapter, um, and then I'll, do, I'll talk a little bit more and then uh, read to you from, an, from the exciting part. Um, so this is the beginning. Uh, and then this is from the point of view of Chula, who is the middle class girl, and she's the one who is able to, to come as a refugee. This one is called The Photograph. She sits in a plastic chair in front of a brick wall, slouching. She is meek, with her hair parted down the middle. There are almost no lips to be seen, but by the way she bares her teeth, you can tell she is smiling. At first, the smile seems flat, but the more I study it, the more it seems careless and irresponsible. There is a bundle in her arms and a hole for the newborn's face, which comes out red and wrinkled like an old person's. I know it's a boy because of the blue ribbon woven into the blanket edge. Then I stare at the man behind Petrona. He is afroed and striking, weighing his cursed hand on her shoulder. I know what he's done, and it turns my stomach, but who am I to say whom Petrona should allow into a family portrait such as this? On the back, there's a date stamp of when the photo was printed, and because when I count back nine months, 
It falls exactly in the month my family and I fled from Colombia and arrived in LA. I turned back the photograph to look intently at the baby, to register every wrinkle and bulge around the dark hole of his gaping mouth, to decide whether he is crying or laughing, because I know exactly where and how he was conceived. And that's how I lose track of time, thinking it was my fault that the girl Petrona was just 15 when her belly was filled with bones. And when Mama comes back from work, she does not yell, even though she sees the photograph, the envelope, the letter from Petrona, all addressed to me. No, Mama sits down next to me, like taking off so much weight. And together, we are quiet and sorry on our dirty stoop on Via Corona in East LA, staring at that fucking photograph. We were refugees when we arrived to the US. You must be happy now that you're safe, people said. They told us to strive for assimilation. The quicker we transformed into one of the many, the better. But how could we choose? The US was the land that saved us. Colombia was the land that saw us emerge. There were mathematical principles to becoming an American. You had to know 100 historical facts. What was one reason for the Civil War? Who was the president during World War II? And you had to spend five uninterrupted years on North American soil. We memorized the facts, we stayed in place, but when I elevated my feet at night and my head found its pillow, I wondered of what country was I during those hours when my, when my feet were in the air. So interesting fact, my chula, the, the character, became a citizen before I did, which is kind of fun. Um, so everyone in the book has a real um, counterpart, um, and that's how, how the book began. So Chula is a character that is, that is based on me, um, and it kind of felt like, I felt a little jealous when she became a, a citizen, and I was looking at all the things that she had to study. Uh, but I've always been really fascinated by just the things that we say would qualify someone to, to become an American. Like what are we, what are the things that we say, like if you meet like these and these and these things, um, you, are, you can now say that you're an American. Um, and I love, I don't know if you, you know, if you're ever, maybe during the holiday season, look up the 100 questions and see how you would do. Um, but it, yeah, it's, it's super fascinating. Um, I, yeah, I was an immigrant for, yeah, since, yes, 2002 until last year, so a while. Um, and I uh, held many different types of visas. Um, and, and how about just, you know, I think increasingly the, Usually there's, there's two ideas for how, how someone can belong to a place. And so most Europeans countries believe in what's called um, just solis, which is Latin for uh, from, the, from the ground. Or no, they believe in just sanguinis, from the blood. So in most European countries, if you wanted to become a citizen, you would have to mix your blood with someone who is from, from that land. Um, the U.S. believes in just solace, which is from the ground, from, yeah, from, uh, and so that's where that idea of you have to spend five uninterrupted years on North American soil. Um, poetically, it's such a fascinating idea. 
whether you have to mix your blood or whether it, you know, belonging to a place just has to do with having your feet on the ground somewhere. Um, so I did a lot of research for this book. Um, I'm kind of a neurotic writer. Um, and, you know, like some of the things, so just to tell you a little bit about my process, just because it's fun. Um, I have, I have like a, I have a rotation of five different writing outfits and they're all, they're all the same color. They're actually this, this tone of blue, which when they sent me the cover, I was like, can you see into my apartment? I don't understand. Um, and so, and I never wear them anywhere else. So I have these five outfits. I wear them in a rotation. And then on writing days, I will do the exact same things in order. So I will, I will put the outfit on. I will always um, have the same breakfast and like prepare it in the same order. I will like boil water in the same way and like have the same tea. Um, and there's the reason why I do that is because when I, when I wake up and I know that it's a writing day, my brain is like, get out, you know, like, <laughs> just leave. You just can just go to the mall, just don't do it. <laughs> um, but if I force myself into going into, the, into this kind of uh, habit, then um, I am less resistant and I can, I can actually get some writing done. Um, but there's, there's something about my body knows that it's a writing day. And so my mind is just kind of like, all right, I guess we can, we can tolerate this. Um, yeah, so that also just kind of will, will kind of explain why I took a, a whole year off uh, to do research for the book. Uh, it, was, it was really important to me that the, that the book have some kind of like hyper-realist background. And so at the time, Google was, they were, they were scanning all the newspapers of the world and they were putting them online. So I didn't even have to leave my apartment to do research. I could, <laughs> I could just put my outfit on, um, you know, go to my writing room, and then I would just scroll through all the issues of the newspaper from 1989 to 1995. So I read every, I also just, had to read every article, so I read every, <laughs> so I read every, I told you I'm a little neurotic. Um, and so aside from that, so it, it was just like this large amount of research, and I, I was reading the newspapers as if I was reading a novel, and I was trying to look for that kind of story arc, but with history. Um, and then I, I read like seven books on Pablo Escobar because he was such a, a central part of that time. Um, and you would think that I would be satisfied having done all that. I was not. Um, I, what I did next was I went to, there's like a weather database, a historical weather database. And then I clicked through every day of the novel <laughs> just so that I could get a sense of what the weather was like. Um, and after, you know, having done all that, I was like, okay, I finally know all, everything that there is to know. Like, there isn't anything that I've missed. Um, and, yeah, and then I kind of, because the, the point of view are these young girls, um, I was really interested in how children can perceive these kind of, like, large, traumatic, historical situations. 
Um, and Chula is, is younger, is, she's like the younger character. And so she's always um, misinterpreting what's going on, which is fun. But it also makes it more dangerous, which is not fun. Um, so I'm going to read to you, oh, I just lost my page. Uh, this is about a third of the way in. Um, so this is also from Chula. This chapter is called The Hour of the Fog. All day we waited for Papa. Mama yelled he was on his way, stop asking. I turned on the television. Everything on the television was about Pablo Escobar. There was a banner of text running at the bottom of the screen. Breaking news, the biggest manhunt in history. We turned up the volume to hear over the hail. A reporter was saying Pablo Escobar had escaped and that he had not been in a high security prison as the government wanted the country to believe, but he had been living in a high security mansion. He's free, he can come to Bogota, I said. Chula, hold on a minute, I'm trying to listen, Mama said. Every channel on the television was showing specials. Reporters stood inside the high security prison, showing off the water beds, jacuzzis, fine carpets, marble tiles, the sauna, the bar with the discotheque, the telescopes, radio equipment, and so many weapons, grenades, machine guns, pistols, machetes. He had been running the cartels from prison. Finally, we found the channel that was talking about the details of the escape. There was an animated map of the prison. The prison was nested in the hilly mountainside of Medellin. Little army men swept us around the building. The reporter said that since the prison guards were all Pablo Escobar's men, the escape was easy. The men, Pablo Escobar and his men, were thought to have escaped at the hour of the fog. That's because they slipped unseen past the battalion surrounding the prison, and since up in the hills a heap of women's clothes was later discovered, it was thought that Pablo Escobar and his men went out into the mountains, in disguise, a row of ladies walking into the clouds. When it was dusk, Mama said Papa was late because of traffic. Then she said maybe there had been a landslide, which happens sometimes on the winding cliff roads leading back into the city. I thought of car accidents, hospitals, women in distress, hitchhikers. My sister Cassandra asked, what did he say exactly when you talked to him, Mama? Mama shrugged. He said he was leaving right away. He was going to get his bag and drive home. The television droned on in the background, Pablo Escobar this, Pablo Escobar that. I huddled with Mama on the couch. Night fell. It began to rain again. The drum of rain banged on our roof and windows, and the howling wind crept through the bottom of the front door. I was falling asleep when Mama rose to her feet and went about the house moving things from one table to another. Her bathrobe ballooned about her as she bent and picked things up from the floor. She dropped the dictionary into a cabinet drawer and said, his car probably broke down on the highway. Mama scrubbed her face with her hands. For the first time, I noticed the color. Her forehead was white, but her cheekbones and overlip glistened in a sickly green. I tried to imagine Papa's car breaking down. Maybe there had been a nail in the middle of the road. 
I imagined Papa cranking on the cross-shaped tire iron as neon orange triangles flashed by the car, reflecting passing headlights. Then I imagined Papa bursting through the front windshield of his car in an accident. I averted my eyes, but the image was there. The tips of my ears tingled. Go to sleep, Mama said. I'll wake you when your father comes. I want to wait, Mama. I'm sure he's fine. Go and I'll wake you. I went to the attic and crawled into bed next to Cassandra, the powder of rain over the world of our dreams. The next day, downstairs, Mama was still smoking in the living room, and the television was emitting a loud, continuous beep, showing a static image of color bars. Mama, Cassandra was saying, shaking her shoulder, Mama, did Papa come? Mama narrowed her eyes until they closed. She sucked her cigarette, swallowing the smoke. Then it came forked out of her nostrils. Cassandra shook her again. Mama's eyes broke open. What is it? Did Papa call? What time is it? It's seven. Mama sat up and put out her cigarette in the ashtray. She picked up the telephone and then held it in her hand. The telephone buttons lighted fluorescent green, and the dim sound of the dial tone filled the room. Mama, why don't you dial? I'm thinking. Mama, dial, what are you waiting for? But the color drained from her. She was looking into the distance as she replaced the receiver, then she was on her feet, braiding her fingers at the nape of her head, and then she was sitting against the wall, hiding her face between her knees. It will be okay, your papa is okay, she called after a while. Her voice built a new anxiety in me. The police in Medellin found a Pablo Escobar hideout. The reporter was standing fully dressed in the shower, showing how a young cop, who for no reason wondered whether the apartment bought with laundered money had running water, had turned the shower knob. What happened next was that the shower wall swung out like a door, and there below a few steps was a small apartment. The reporter motioned for the cameras to come in. He flicked on a switch. Everything was in disarray. There was a bed. Here, you may imagine, the subject of the biggest manhunt in history peacefully slept while the police searched the apartment. The reporter lifted a coffee cup left on the nightstand. When police first entered, this coffee was still warm. The room was empty and the police left to search the vicinity, but little did they know, the reporter said, walking to a wall where he pulled on a cord, there was another hideout within the hideout. A small door swung out from the wall and revealed a tight crawl space. Pablo Escobar probably sat here, literally a hairbreadth away from the authorities, biding his time to sneak away. The telephone rang all day, but Mama was holed up in her bedroom with her door shut, so I stayed with the television. At night, Mama turned into a black widow. Her bed was stripped and the pillows and blankets were on the floor. I found her sitting directly on the mattress. The firelight of the candle clasped between her thighs, threw a satin sheen on her hair, and her contorted fingers radiated orange shadows. Her cheekbones and forehead glistened, but her eyes hung back. She was braiding the air with her fingers, mumbling prayers. When I touched her, her body crumbled under my fingers as if it were ash. She curved by the candle, crying. Bowled over, she rocked under her thighs and howled. It was a pained, low, 
guttural howl. It washed through my entire body. Everything was terrible. I howled as well. My eyes sprang with tears and my sight doubled. Mama with four hands covering her face saying, what are we going to do, Chula? What in the world are we going to do? Um, yeah, so there were many parts in the book that were, that were very intense, um, very intense to write. Um, and uh, I will say that as I was going through all the kind of different visas that I had to hold, there was a period of time where I couldn't travel. And there was something to not being able to go back that really forced me to, I guess, to just want to, to build um, this place that I couldn't visit with, with words. Um, and there's, so there's a lot of uh, like sensory details in this novel, and I think it's because of that I was just like trying to return somewhere. Um, at the time, it was also, uh, you know, I, so I moved to Chicago, and it, uh, and it was the first place that I lived in the US. And that was also my first winter that I ever experienced. <laughs> um, and it, it was funny. I mean, now I can say it was funny. But I remember um, somebody told me that, asked me if I had a coat. And I was like, no. They were like, you, you're going to need a coat. And I was like, no, I think I'm fine. <laughs> Um, the coldest that I had experienced was maybe like 50 degrees. <laughs> so uh, yeah, so the, when the weather started to get colder, there was a point where every day was literally the coldest day that I had ever <laughs> experienced. Um, and I got really scared of what would happen when the temperature reached zero. I was like, the, do things explode? Like, I don't, I don't you know, like what happened, you know? <laughs> It didn't seem possible that it could be much worse. Um, so I was, I was living in Chicago. I had roommates. And they were all, sometimes they would go home for the holidays. Um, and I would, I would stay behind. I would stay in the apartment. And as soon as they would leave, I would just turn the dial to 90. <laughs> and I was like, ah, oh, this is so civilized now. Um, so it wasn't that in that kind of environment. Like that's what was happening in my life um, when I was writing. Uh, the other thing that that is interesting to mention in the writing of this book is that I was I was working as a translator, and I was doing a lot of translation work, um, translating articles for newspapers, and sometimes I did a little bit of interpreting, um, and I started to work with with a journalist. Um, who was, she was doing uh, work with ICE detention centers. And so she would call in inmates, and I would be on the phone call, and I would interpret their conversation back and forth. And interpreting is super interesting. And it seems like something that your brain shouldn't be able to do. Because you, you so you hear one language, and then you, you hear it, you translate automatically, you speak in the other language. You tune yourself out, listen again, and then translate again, and then uh, you know s continue to speak. So it just seems like you shouldn't be able to do this. Um, so I became really interested with uh, what what is going on in your brain when you're when you're doing this, and it was also uh, kind of my favorite language territory, maybe because you're in between 
you know, it, it's so much of my life has been dictated by borders, and this is a border too. Um, so that moment when I've heard one language and I am uh, not yet come up with the words of, you know, in Spanish um, or in English, there's this, there's this space that feels borderless where I am in between both languages. Um, and it just, it, it's like my favorite like language um, territory. So because I was doing that so much in my daily life, I started to do that when I was writing the book. So I, I started to pretend that I was my own like CNN interpreter. Um, so I would, you know, I would like imagine the word, the the world of the story in Spanish, and I would kind of like uh, phrase everything in Spanish, like the dialogue and the descriptions. I would think of it all in Spanish, and then by the time that I would, uh, you know, the language would reach my fingertips, then I would like type it in English. Um, so that's why some of the language in the book is sounds a little bit odd. So for example, the the title. Uh, Fruit of the Drunken Tree. Um, I could have done a, a, a correct translation, and I could have just used the you know the term that you use for this tree. I don't have. Has anybody seen this flower around? I don't know if you have it here. We have it in California. There's a, a California variety of this tree. It's a datura. Uh, you also see it in the South in the U.S. Um, and it's this very beautiful tree. Uh, it's very perfumey, it's very intoxicating, and it's incredibly toxic. Um, the variety that we have in Colombia is even more toxic than the one that you have in, here in the US. So we call this tree um, drunken tree. We call it borrachero, um, which is literally like that which makes you drunk. Um, so I could have said fruit of the datura, uh, but I really was interested in the, in the language in the book. I wanted you to feel that something had been lost in translation. Or I wanted you to feel that sometimes, um, maybe like it was a bad translation. Um, I wanted that the process of going from one language to another to be, to be there on the page, to be something that you could see. Um, Another example uh, I just read to you from that first chapter, there's, so this, um, this saying, uh, her belly was filled with bones. So it, it sounds so poetic, right? Um, it's a Colombian saying. Um, and it, it's specifically like when, if, if a woman, like if, if there's a pregnancy that's a little, there's something like a little wrong, like maybe if someone gets impregnated against their will, um, you say like their belly was filled with bones. Um, and there's something very, so, so dark and so mysterious about it. Um, and when you're, doing, when you're doing interpretation, you're supposed to steer clear of any kind of idiom. So if there's an idiom and you have to translate it, you just translate for meaning and you don't try to you know, find an equivalent or anything. Um, so the, the book is filled with all kinds of like bad translations or like the things that you're not supposed to do when you're translating. Um, I, was really, I was really lucky uh, when, the, when, the first, we, when the book came out, 
We also sold the rights for Spanish, um, for the Spanish translation. And so the book came out in both languages, which just made me so happy because they were my two, you know, they were my two languages, like my mother tongue and then this, this language that is my adopted tongue. Um, and they asked me if I wanted to do the translation. Um, and I, I considered it, but then I thought, you know, it, I, I think of this, of the original, which is in English, I think of, of this as a translation. So to do a translation on the translation, you know, it was just like too much. Um, so they, they hired someone else to do it, uh, a Mexican translator, his name is um, Guillermo Reola. And he was, he was kind enough to, to let me go in and make it more Colombian, because our, our, you know, our Spanish is so different. Um, but I, I, you know, I've read the novels so many times in English that when I was reading the Spanish translation, as soon as I started to read, I heard the English version in my head. <laughs> and so I couldn't actually even read what he had done. Eventually, I had to turn on the radio to distract half of my brain so that I could read, <laughs> so that I could read the Spanish. Um, and, then it, and then it worked. Um, and I, yeah, the, it's, it's so fascinating for me to, to read the, the Spanish version because sometimes it feels like I'm listening in into that kind of creative, like first, you know, the origin of the story. Um, so I've, I've also been doing quite a, a bit of traveling. Um, and I got to go to Colombia to the book festival there. Uh, and it, the, the book there, so the book here is called, is you know, considered like an immigrant story. And the book there is, is considered to be a novel written in exile. So it's interesting to be in the middle of the, of the two conversations. Um, I'm going to read to you a little bit from um, Petrona. She's the girl, so we, in Colombia we have a lot of the internally displaced people. Um, and we've had, you know, violence for a long time that's either from guerrilla groups or paramilitary groups. And so it, it happens that a lot of people who have farmland kind of end up being in the crossfire of violence and they end up having to leave their homes. So Petrona is someone whose family went through that. Um, and she's, she's, she's very young. And yet, she's the only person that can be the breadwinner for her family. Um, in Bojaca, we had a plot of vegetables and some cows. My older brothers killed rabbits, and I roasted them. Mami kept us all in school and out of trouble, the farmhouse tidy and the table full of harvested vegetables. In the hills, in Bogota, we had no plot, and there were no animals to hunt. We got our food from the market. I made a small indoor fire to cook for us. I kept mommy comfortable in the only plastic chair we owned, and when the cooking was done, I boiled eucalyptus leaves to help with her asthma. But I was not good at watching children. The little ones skinned their knees under my watch. They bloodied their hair from throwing rocks. They got black eyes. Mommy wanted to know what was I doing, her children falling apart under my watch. I tried to keep them clean. I kept a bowl of water in the corner and a rag to pass over their cheeks, but I often forgot to look at them, the little ones. 
The day I bled and stained our mattress, Mummy had said, you're a little woman now, marry or go to work. I did not have suitors. I knew women in the hills worked in cleaning. Mummy said I had been doing housekeeping since I was five. Cleaning for a rich family would be easy. Mummy said I had to train my little sister Aurora so she could do the house chores. We were the only women in the family. The boys were older, but Mummy wanted the boys to focus on their schooling. Mummy said if just one of them became a doctor or a priest, it would be our ticket out of the invasion. All the mothers in the hills said something of the sort, but I hadn't seen it work out for anyone. I taught little Aurora to watch her brothers. I taught her how to clean all her brother's clothes and wash them in a plastic tub. I gave her knives so she could cut the vegetables. I taught her to prepare unripe papaya for her brothers when they had worms. This is how you hold the papaya to spoon the seeds out, I told her, holding the long glove of the halved papaya in one hand, posing the spoon ready to rake against the fruit's flesh. Aurora took the spoon from me and dug. Sometimes my mind went to places I wanted to forget, like the look of our farmhouse in Boyacá after it was torched by paramilitary. All of the walls of the farmhouse fell. Now chop, I instructed. Little Aurora pressed her knuckles down against the table like I had shown her. She seesawed the knife against the table, uh, slowly on the slimy black seats. They broke apart into smaller and smaller pieces. When Aurora was finished, I collected the seats into a napkin and wiped the knife on my pants and put it back on the plastic cup where we kept our cutlery. The only thing left standing of the farmhouse was the staircase. Even the wood of the banister had turned black. Um, so I did a lot of research for that too. I read a lot of um, oral histories from internally displaced people. Um, and in, you know, in the novel, Pedrona, uh, the settlement where she's living, uh, becomes, uh, uh, there, there starts to be a guerrilla presence there, um, and so she starts to get in a, in a bad situation there. Um, I think I, you know, there, there are so many books about Colombia in this time, and they all have to do mainly with Pablo Escobar and what he was doing and what he was thinking. Um, and I wanted to tell a story where the center of the book was were victims and were girls and what kind of things that they have to go through and what kinds of things that they have to survive um, and how did, you know, specifically being women and girls, how did that kind of limit um, their options? Um, and, you know, among that, it's just, it's also like a friendship story between these two girls. With that, we have reached the part of our podcast where we turn to our club book audience for questions and comments for Ingrid Rojas Contreras and her work. In this book club, we like to encourage members and authors to connect and engage and help bridge the gap between the page you read and the process it took to write it. Our first question of the night comes from an audience member wondering how Contreras chose the name for her book, Fruit of the Drunken Tree. So I was, I was super interested in this tree. Um, 
this was another thing that was I felt like haunted by. There were a lot of hauntings involved in writing this novel. I grew up with this tree in my in my front garden, um, and so they this this tree is where they they take the you know the something in the tree um, they produce into a drug, and it's also where the date rape drug comes from. Um, and so in Colombia, the, the drug is called Burundanga. And it's kind of a zombie drug. And it's been used for, for many, many years. Um, and it, it kind of inhibits your ability to make decisions. So you become highly suggestible to what somebody tells you to do. You also have temporary uh, memory loss. And none of your motor skills are uh, impaired. So for someone who sees you, it's not apparent that you're under, um, you're under this drug. So it's really hard to catch. Usually how it's used, you know, contemporarily, is if you get into a cab and then somebody blows this powder in your face, um, and then they, t they drive you from ATM to ATM, and then they tell you to withdraw all your money. And you do. Um, and again, like to the bank tellers, like it just doesn't seem like there's anything wrong with you. Um, yeah, and so then the next day you also don't remember who did this to you. So, <laughs> um, it's, so it, I was always just really interested by that. And also, um, that's the drug, but also indigenous people have been uh, kind of chewing on this, on this plant to kind of see the future and gather visions. So there's, you know, there's, there's a whole other uh, history to it. Um, and when I, when I moved to San Francisco, which is where I live now, there was that tree in the garden of, of that house. Um, so I, I think there was something about seeing the tree on my way in and out um, that really made me kind of think through what this tree could represent and what it could mean. Um, and what I eventually landed on was that it, it kind of made a parallel for me of what Colombia the country is like. It's just this very incredibly alluring, intoxicating, beautiful place. Um, and yet it has like this, this darkness and this mystery and this danger running through it. Um, and also this, you know, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of themes about memory. Like when you cross a border, there's things that you choose to put down. And there's things that you choose to take with you. There's things that you choose to forget. Um, and so the, the, one of the faculties of this tree of producing memory loss is something that I was also connecting to. So it just became this, you know, connected to everything in the book, and I wanted to, to put it you know, front and center. This audience member asks how Contreras invented her characters and some of their motivations. Yeah, um, so there's Pedrona falls in love with a boy. You know, she's 15, so she's just trying to have a regular 15-year-old life where she just wants to be in love. Um, so Gorrión is the, is the person that she, that she starts to, she feels like super attracted to. Um, and he is, he's hiding a lot of things. Um, so um, I th he's, the, he's the kind of person that has a connection to the guerrilla group that is in the, in the territory where she's at. Um, I was, you know, like one of the things that it, that was really fascinating when I was reading newspapers and also doing interviews, um, 
with Colombians who had been maybe victimized or victimizers in the conflict was that every story didn't have, people didn't feel like they had a choice. So it always felt like you, you tried to do things the right way and then slowly your options got to be less and less and less um, until you kind of were forced into doing like a, making a horrible decision. Uh, so I think a lot of the characters in the book, Gorion included, um, are someone who are, are people who like don't see another way. Um, I interviewed I interviewed former guerrilla members for this for this book just because I wanted to know what that other point of view would be like. And you know, like the the stories that I heard about how you know reasons why somebody may join. Uh, were so different and surprising. So, like you would assume, yeah, it's like political reasons, and like you, that's why you join, because they're they're uh, communist uh, allied people. Um, and but you know, sometimes it it would just be. Um, I interviewed someone whose grand the grandfather had been murdered by paramilitary. So his father had joined the guerrillas to avenge the death, and then he also joined the guerrillas to avenge the death of his grandfather. Um, and then while he was serving under the guerrillas, one of his cousins was raped by a guerrilla member, and so then he switched to the paramilitary to avenge his, right? So then it, it, I became interested in the way that sometimes the the, when, when you have conflict for this long, because we've had conflict for a long time, um, some of the reasons why there's violence and some of the reasons why people um, sympathize or like support those causes are not black and white. Um, and so in, the, in this book, I was really interested in those gray areas. Like what if, yeah, what if we looked at uh, Colombian history as a, as a like big gray area, where everyone is kind of, um, you know, stuck in a in a bad situation. The other thing that was happening in Colombia that made a lot of people join uh, was the false positives. I don't know if y'all have heard of the false positives. Um, so the so the the Colombian uh, government had a quota. They wanted a death quota for guerrilla members, and they asked the army to meet the death quota. And um, so sometimes the army would get uh, vacation and they would get bonuses. And, um, or sometimes they would lose their jobs if they didn't meet the quota. And what started happening was that um, innocent people started to be killed. And that when, they when the body resurfaced, they would be wearing camouflage, and then in the death certificate, it would say that they were guerrilla members. Um, so the, you know, like the, when your own, the people who are supposed to be protecting you are killing innocent people and then passing them off as guerrilla members, and you are kind of touched by that violence, what do you do, right? Uh, so I, I tried to write into a place with all these characters where I'm approaching each of these like very complicated pockets of morality. Like when you, yeah, like things are simple when it's just like this or that, but like if you are slowly, 
you know, there's a lot of things wrong and there are a lot of problems and there is a lot of people doing not what they're supposed to do, then what, you know, what do you do and how do you have a friendship in that, in that scenario? This question is how Contreras went about getting her book published as a first-time author. I think, you know, that there were so many challenges. Some of it had to do with, I went to, I went to school in Chicago, um, I studied writing there, and I was often the only person of color in my, in my class. And so I felt like a lot of the, a lot of the things that I was asked to explain kind of required, would require me to become like a tourist guide of the story instead of actually writing the story. And so I felt like very alone for many years. So then I found, I found places where I could go. So I, you know, going to conferences was amazing or just going into residencies. I, I went to um, Sandra Cisneros's um, Macondo, which is an amazing residency. Um, I had tequila with Sandra Cisneros, it was amazing. Um, and all those things like really do help you to write. You know what I mean? Like it just sounds like frivolous, but like, it really like after you have tequila with Sandra Cisneros, like you do go home and you're like, I'm gonna write this novel. <laughs> um, I published an excerpt from the novel in Guernica. And I think that's the biggest kind of moment that started to get things rolling for me. I had been looking for an agent for maybe a year before that and was just not having any luck. Uh, but after I published that piece, um, like I didn't check my email through the whole weekend and then I opened it on Monday and there were like 10 messages from agents and I was like, oh my God, this never happens. Um, and then I found that agents can actually reply to email really quickly, which was not obvious before that. Um, so I found my agent through that. We did like, we did two rounds of revisions together we sent the book out, um, and then we we got like a few like interested parties, but nobody um, bid to buy the book. So then I had to do another revision. I think the revision is the like hardest thing, where you're like, I've like been doing this so much, like how do I do this again? Um, but I did, I did it, um, and then we we did one more revision together, and we sent it out. And it was just like the, it was such a, like, I was so nervous when we sent it out the second time, because I was like, I don't know if I can do this again. Like if it, if it does, if nobody is interested at this point, like I might have to just put this book away. Um, but at that point, we, you know, like we fixed the, there was like a structural thing maybe that was, that was going on and we fixed it. Um, and then we got bids on it and I was, you know, overjoyed. Um, and I, yeah, I've, I found my agent through that. But I think it's true, like, if you, finding community, I think is the, is the biggest, was the biggest thing for me. Because it, it can be such a lonely, hard experience. But if you have someone who is kind of like cheering you on, or if you have someone with whom you can go and get, I, this is a trademarked um, uh, term a complaint drink <laughs> where you know you just like go together and you just get a drink and then you just complain about edits or whatever you know horrible publishing thing you have to do 
and then you, you go back to it, and then you, then you feel better about it, and then you do it. Um, so that's how I got through that, but yeah. Publishing in Guernica was the, I think, the biggest moment for me. This audience member wonders how much of this book is based off of Contreras' life experiences and how much she created. I, you know, like the, the skeleton of the book is all real. So there was someone like Padrona in my life. Um, and she was put in this situation where she had to make a horrible, desperate decision. Um, and it tore both of our lives apart. Like that whole thing is real. Um, everything around that is made up. But then any time that there's history or like political things, those are all real. Um, I quote from newspapers in the book, that's all real, right? Because I did so much research and I wanted to use it. <laughs> uh, you know, because I wasn't procrastinating, it was research. <laughs> This question is what's next for Ingrid Rojas Contreras? What next? Um, I'm working on a family memoir. And it's about, it's three generations. And so it's about my grandfather, who was a curandero, um, which means faith healer. And uh, people said that he had the power to move clouds. Um, so it's super fun story to write. The last question of the night comes from an audience member wondering how often Contreras goes back to Colombia. I've been back now, you know, I just had to wait to, for all my paper things to get, um, to get in order. Um, but I've been going back and I've been going back and doing research for the memoir, so I try to go back now every two years. Yeah, but it, um, that first moment of going back after it had been a while was so magical and I, I kind of forgot or it just surprised me. It probably happens to a lot of you, like you go back to where you're from and then something in the landscape clicks and you, you suddenly like deeply feel like, oh, I am from here. Um, and I had that wonderful feeling when I, get, when I got back. But then of course, um, Everyone, everyone in my family there calls me um, the gringa, so I'm no longer, <laughs> I'm no longer Colombian. And then people here call me the Colombian. So, yeah, I live, I live in that gray area. Thank you so much for coming. That wraps up our Dakota County Library Wentworth event with Ingrid Rojas Contreras. Make sure to catch our next Club Book podcast with Brandon Hobson at Scott County Library, Prior Lake. National Book Award finalist Brandon Hobson is the author of four novels, including the critically acclaimed coming-of-age story, Where the Dead Sit Talking. Hobson's masterwork is informed by his own experiences as an enrolled member of the Cherokee Nation of Oklahoma. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons, sign up for our e-newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. Stay up to date with all of our events at our Club Book Facebook page. If you're on Twitter, find us using the handle clubbookmn. And if you enjoy these free Club Book events and podcasts, remember to share them with your friends. They just may too. 
Thanks again to all those who make Club Book possible, including Melsa, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include MinPost and Red Balloon Bookshop, where you can purchase all the books featured in Club Book. Finally, a very special thank you to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Club Book, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library.